Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Mentor Dial to the show. Mentor spent 16 years as a top executive at L'Oreal and is a specialist in digital transformation, and recently has launched his latest book called You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. I believe that the release of this book is perfect timing as we are in the midst of a massive disruption. Now is the time we need leaders who bleed authenticity. We want our entrepreneurs whose leadership rings true, not only to employees, but to customers as well. Mentor details for us what he believes are the areas that leaders now should focus on as they build their companies and thinking about scale. A couple of the topics that we get into today include companies need to have a purpose. We've talked about the why, why entrepreneurs should lean into their personalities, the two components needed for long-term success of your startup by creating a brand that is real for people and making your purpose meaningful. This was an interesting discussion. And last but not least, and among other topics, purpose is key to unlocking discretionary energy. I love that term discretionary injury and it's uh, the ability to unlock that for your organization is going to be one of the keys to your growth. So really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will as well. Now onto the interview. Hey, Mentor, welcome to the podcast. Brett, thank you for having me on your show. Lovely to be piped in from London here. Yeah, London to Chicago. I love it. I just had my first guest on from Ireland a couple of weeks ago. So getting back into the international flavor of the, you know, the business world has no boundaries anymore, right? Digital, everything That's else for we, sure. can, we can get. Lovely to have diversity on. Exactly. So no, super excited to have you on and we've got a lot of things I want to dig into with you. But first, maybe share with the audience just a little bit about your background and, and kind of what you're working on today. And then we'll then we'll jump right in. Well, oddly, I think I'm going to I haven't said this before, but I think my background is a maze. I've, I've changed countries 15 times. I've changed homes 34 times. I was born in Belgium to American parents, raised in France, educated in England for 12 years in private schools, and uh, married to a French-Spanish woman, and have kind of learned to get by in eight languages. And, and as far as professions is concerned, it's about as chaotic. I, I, was a, um, I, I studied trilingual literature at university in America, and then I worked in an investment bank. I started the travel agency for musicians. I taught tennis for three years. I sold pots and pans, worked at a zoo, an aquarium, wrote a novel, uh, then went to business school and worked for L'Oréal for 16 years. And, and since 2009, I was trotted out on my own little path and basically trying to elevate the debate and transform companies to do good. Yeah, no, I love it. I think it was kind of a pioneering journey for you because even looking back at some of what you did at L'Oreal was ahead of its time, if you will, right? Because I think ten, even 10 years ago, it was all corporate and business and profits. And there was very few companies that had kind of adopted the, the I don't want to call it mission mindset of what you're doing. But today, I don't know if there's a way I've come full full circle 180 that truly believe that the future companies and high growth companies are all going to be mission driven in some sense, maybe not changing the world, but you got to get the employees and, and customers behind it to rally, right? I think that you're so right, Brett. Actually, the, the issue is it's, 
it probably still is very unlikely in publicly traded companies to have a real purpose, one that actually bleeds throughout the organization into every part of what you're doing. That's, that's where you get the real hype, not the real hype, but the real energy and power. But back in the times, I, I didn't start it. So to be very fair and to give justice a due where it should be, it was the founder of the company that had this idea. And so I was just able to, to dive into this pool of purpose and, and embrace it fully. And, and it was a really powerful experience. Yeah, no, and it carried through and, you know, I, I already took us down a rabbit hole, I was, <laughs> which isn't uncommon because what I really wanted to do, because I mean, you got a fantastic podcast, but your most recent book I thought was, was really interesting and that's kind of what I wanted to dig into today because a lot of the audience is either thinking about starting a company in the early days of starting a company or, or growing a company and I think what you had outlined in the book is a, a blueprint or a checklist of how to think about it as you're starting to scale. Because in the book, you go, you kind of talk about both, both sides and the positives of big corporations like L'Oreal, how they were to do it. But when I'm listening to that, because I spent half of my career in that world and just the transformational and the challenge that those companies are going to have to try to pivot to where if I'm starting a company, I can, I can kind of build this in day one. So maybe before we get into a little bit, why, why did you write the book and what was, is it just something that you were passionate about? What was the kind of the, the tipping point to, to jump in? Oh, well, uh, so the, the real story, Brett, is that this book was actually supposed to be my first book. Oh, interesting. And, and at the time, actually the only book that I had in my idea. When I was 18 years old, Brett, I said, what's going to make for a fulfilled life? And I gave myself five objectives, and one of them was to publish a book. So I was like, all right, cool. If I'm going to publish a book, what book do I want to do? And I decided I wanted to write the book of my life but not like the book about me, Minter's life, but the book about life in general and, and maybe the philosophy of life, which includes how to be a person at work. And, and so that was my initial premise, okay. how to lead life that allows you to be fulfilled and successful at work and at that very same time, fulfilling you as a person as well. What does that look like? And so I started by writing the book in... 2014, I went off to Dubrovnik in Croatia and spent about eight days writing around about 3,000 words a day. Wow. And, and I ended up with a 30,000 word manuscript. I'm like, cool, this is it. I got back home and news that my stepfather had died. Oh, no. So I ended up going to his funeral. At his funeral, talked with my stepbrother. My stepbrother at the time was working at Hershey, and uh, I told him about this story that I'd been doing, an heirloom story for the family about my grandfather. And um, he said, oh, let me see it. So I sent it to him. And five days later, I'd returned to London after the funeral. I got an email from a chap in PBS saying, I love your story. I want it on PBS. <laughs> oh, boy. Right. So actually, that particular story was reproduced in different formats three times. Because I would do, I then got into doing the film, doing the book of the film. And then I, I, I come back out of that. There's like a, there's a time for that. And another big email hits me. 
And then, uh, then I put it on hold again. I do another book, Future Proof. And then another big event in my life happens. My best friend died. And then I wrote a book to sort of do therapy for that because I just couldn't, I couldn't do the book of my life yet. I wasn't in a good place for that. So I ended up writing Artificial Empathy. And then, all right, now's the time. I, I write this book, You Lead, with Kogan. And uh, I, dis- I submit the manuscript on the 13th of March, 2020. Oh. And Britain goes into lockdown seven days later, and my publisher is furloughed. And I'm like, oh, no. You're not, no. Really? It's never going to happen. Right. So the book of my life has actually taken better part of seven years to write. In the meantime, I've done a few things, but that's, that's actually the real story behind You Lead. And, and ultimately, really, it is about leadership off and online, in work and out of work. Yeah. And I think the timing, I mean, better lucky than good sometimes, because I think what you wrote was what should have been transformational pre-pandemic, but I lived in that world. So I know how that moves slowly and like our industry's different. I don't need this type of leadership. We can still deliver blah, blah, blah. Well, pandemic hits and it completely <laughs> is disrupting everything, especially in the B2B space. And like I said, when I, I dug into your, when I started reading your book, I don't, I don't like to go in with kind of knowing what it's about. It, it was you lead. So I'm like, well, it's going to be a leadership book. But what I found really interesting was it's almost two books built into one, but it doesn't read separately. And I'll explain <laughs> what that means because it was really, t- you're talking about the digital transformation and how an organization today needs to be set up in order to grow. But you also get into personal leadership, whether you're the founder, the CEO, or just in whatever role you are in the company and blended those two together. I'm like, wow, this is super fascinating because what I found with leadership books in general, I like them, but it's the old adage that is this a need to solve problem or a nice to solve problem? I think too many people see leadership as a nice to solve versus need to solve, but this was perfect. So then after I read, I'm like, this is going to be perfect for my audience because they're building a young company. If they can build your employee centricity, the customer centricity, and just a lot. So and now I'm rambling quite a bit, but it was beautiful. <laughs> I loved you get back in and say, all right, so if I'm a first time founder, right? I mean, definitely thinking about it from the, uh, let's start maybe with the leadership and the personal, right? You can't be the blending of the two, I think is so true and so necessary. And maybe kind of talk about that and how I think the intuitive nature is, well, I, I'm going to piss off too many people if I stick to my beliefs, but yeah, I think we're seeing you led, shared some good examples in the book. So let me shut up for a minute and let you t- kind of talk about that. Well, let me, let me just say one thing as I'm listening to you, Brett. The funny thing is, and this is not off the record, but it's, it's, it's certainly not public uh, domain generally. I actually thought of my book as two experiences merged into one. So very much personal and professional, but the, the, the little story in my mind, the bird on my shoulder says, the professional story is about running this hair care company around the world. And the personal story is being a fan of the Grateful Dead for so much of my life and why those two things merged. And, and that was the sort of story that I had in my mind, but it's sort of subdued through the process with Kogan and, and what they wanted, how they wanted to do it. So yeah. that's just to echo your point there. <laughs> it came out because I was picturing in my mind, my experiences, right. And people I've worked with and that. So but your goal was, a, was a definitely achieved. 
So when you come to being an entrepreneur, I mean, I, I've been an entrepreneur three times in my life, two times flaming failures. The word family and friends inevitably comes up when you're an entrepreneur. Because, well, who's the first person going to read your blog? Your mom. Right. And by the way, you might not have a second person, right? <laughs> so when, when you go to get some, oh, God, I, I really need, if I only had a little bit more money to build the system, I need $50,000. Who do you go see? Friends and family. Yeah. How can you tell me anything else than other than that's a personal story? And what are you, what are you basing that $50,000 loan on or whatever it is? Your personal credibility. Right. And ultimately, that's the story uh, as you grow through. It, it needs and is part of you. When you go to a bank to get a loan, sure, they're going to read the paper, but they're going to size you up as an individual. Right. Do you look straight in the eye or don't? Are you coherent in your communications or not? Do you check out? Are you showing up? And all this is actually personal gestalt. I mean, really who you are. So I think as a, when you're an entrepreneur, it's really important to lean into your personality. And there are so many benefits to it. First of all, you, you know you have weaknesses. Are you able to embrace them and therefore to compensate appropriately with a network? Because you are your network. Right. And if, if you have a trusted network, where you're trustworthy and you trust them, then you find a way to, to compensate for where you're weak. And by knowing your weaknesses, you don't have this chip on the shoulder, which is the stuff that makes you a horrible leader. When you've got stuff that's unresolved in you, that is generally deeply personal, then it's going to come out. Because what happens as any business, entrepreneurs in particular, is the stress and you know, you, you kind of sell a pipe dream. Oh, I, you lend me 50,000, it's gonna be worth 2 million. Yep, I wish, maybe, maybe not. But you build it up and you hope it's gonna go there. You're building on credibility, but right. you're gonna to need to deal with stress and, and things are not gonna happen and, and the, the, the client doesn't come through or goes bust and shit always happens. So you need to have that strength of character to be able to go through that. And that resilience. And, and I feel that the more you're in touch with who you are, the better able you're going to be able to handle that stress and tap into a stronger energy when you start building the company because you know who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. We'll stop yeah. there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, th I think it's so good and so true. And I can't remember now if it, we talked a little bit offline that I, I, grew up in the corporate, right? So really good product. And if you execute well, the business is going to do really well. But now, you know, I have the pleasure of doing this podcast for over hundred episodes and talking to different folks, founders, you know, people like you that, you know, I think I'll oversimplify this, but right. If you, as the founder, you started the business for a reason, right. And so you're passionate and it doesn't have to be solving world hunger, but something you're passionate about, and it's going to help others. And if you can't get your employees behind that, right, to get them excited about what they're doing, there's no way they're going to be able to get customers excited about your product or your service or those types of things. Where I think even five years ago, maybe this is more specifically in the B2B world, 
10 years ago, problem solved it, people are going to buy it. But I think more and more, the, the, the story of the product is what's going to differentiate in the character of the owner. And it's really hard to, if as a founder of a business, you're not out being the brand ambassador for the business, it's going to be harder to grow it, right? I mean, is that is that a fair characterization? Entirely. So I, I there are two things that I think kind of need to be shoehorned into the story. I, mean, I say shoehorned because if you start with these concepts, it, you can be a no starter for too many. You kind of need to get up and go and try shit. But the two components that really go into the long-term success and at some point need to be fitted in are brand and purpose. So brand being more than just the logo, the URL, it is what do you stand for? Brand is a signal of trust. The purpose, it can be a grandiose one, like, you know, as you were saying, solving world hunger. But the way I like to break it down and make it so much more real for people, especially when you're an entrepreneur, is actually what is meaningful about what you're doing. Purpose is one of the bigger forms of meaningfulness, but there are other ways to do it, which I, I think is important to know. Because like you say, you know, you, you go to a kid, I don't know if you have kids, Brett, but you go to your kid and say, what are you passionate about? And they look at you like, mm, uh, I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, what's your purpose? Um, oh, God. One of those questions. Really abstract. Yeah. And, and especially when you're a young startup, the purpose and passion may not be there, may not be obvious. So the question then becomes, how are you making it meaningful? And, and, and that can be like, well, I, I, with getting people on board, recognizing their contributions. Right. That takes time to do and mindset to say, to be generous. So there are, let's call it easy ways to create meaningfulness, going up to a scale of much bigger meaningfulness. The key point is to, to get on that journey and if you can, find a way to, to gather a purpose. And the way I like to describe purpose, which I feel makes it more real, is how would the world be worse off if you didn't exist? Hmm. And, and so it doesn't mean you have to be in something big, but what are you doing that's a value add that the world would be upset about or your community, the clients or whatever, if it didn't exist? Would you just be replaced by another agency that does the basically the same work, another manufacturer that has basically the same type of good products. Right. Or are you doing something that's different, differentiable, and stands for something that's important? So that's the journey that moves from small, light meaningfulness right. into bigger meaningfulness and purpose. Yeah, I think that's so true and, and so good, right? As you're starting about the, the companies and one thing I've written about a couple times is the opportunity in the B2B space right now. It's transforming legacy companies that were built more than 10 years ago aren't built to, to serve right in, in this. They're not digitally centric. They're siloed. They're not people first, not employee first. So if you can flip the switch, at least early on and build that into your organization, it is going to be a huge competitive differentiator. Even if the way I liken it, if, if you can provide that type of 
customer service, not even just service, but the customer experience, which goes with employee experience with an average product, you're going to win, right? Because people want to work with people, right? It's human to human and how they're treated and how their experience is, is going to probably trump unless your product's just awful, right? But so many people still, I still talk to the young founders that are still more focused on the features and benefits of their product as they start to grow important, but in this technology, I mean, somebody's going to be able to copy your technology in three months if it's good and it's successful, people are going to find it. So I'm tending to go more and more back to the, the people side of this thing. And, the, and I really love how you broke it down because I do think what's your mission can be so overwhelming. I don't have one. <laughs> We're not yeah. going to succeed, but- I'm selling widgets, damn it. <laughs> exactly. But like, the story, I, I, I tell this occasionally, sometimes your widget is, is a plug that goes into an enormous piece of steel that's put on the side of a ship that's transporting containers around the world. Your widget is contributing to world trade. Yeah. And so you can, in any widget, find some kind of purpose. You need to be congruent and have some consistency to what you say. And here's the thing I, I think is really important about this whole idea of meaningfulness until, until you, you sort of drink the Kool-Aid. Sometimes it's like, eh, whatever. I just got to do what I got to do. I got to get my paycheck in. Here, like you say, it's people. But what is the single most important resource that we have is time. Yes. And so as soon as we mention time, we go to productivity. And, and we, with the numbers guy ideas, like, well, how many widgets can I sell in a minute that can, or do or whatever? That's not the productivity I think that's interesting. I think the interesting thing is the amount of discretionary energy that your people bring to the work. And, and this, is, this is the exciting part because sometimes you can do the thought in, in a snap, in a shower. You know? So some things don't take a, a, an enormous amount of time. But if you have your neurons firing and you feel enlightened by what you do, and enlightened also brings this notion of, I feel uplifted. Then you are jumping out of bed. The team with whom you're working is equally jumping out of bed and they just like, can't wait. Oh my God, I've got this great idea. And that fire and vim fires through into the communications and the other team gets lifted up by it too. And, and in the matter of micro moments, you've got a big stuff, big thing going on because everyone's bringing their extra energy, the discretionary one, the one, is, the one that goes beyond the, oh, well, I gotta work, or this is, I do this for a paycheck, or, or I think I'm good. You know, of course, I'm, everybody thinks they're giving their all. That's generally the good intention effort. But the one that's interesting is when you tap into the discretionary energy. The one yeah. says, I, can't, I, I want to spend extra hours doing this, not because I need to, because, or at least I need to, because I'm, I'm forced to do it, but because I want to do it. And that's where you have a powerful zone. And purpose is the biggest key to unlocking discretionary energy. Yeah, I love that term too. I'm going to use that. I'll definitely <laughs> credit you with it, but it, it, but it makes so much sense. It just, it, you're right, because you get so much energy today. And if it's not into my job, then somebody else is going to get it. So if you can unlock that with your employees, the power to you. And I'm kind of curious from your vantage, kind of tying back to that with the kind of the pandemic. And right now 
people can say, we're not, we're going back to the offices. I am not buying. We're going back to the offices at anywhere near the level that they're at now. Right. So remote workforce and there was McKinsey or somebody just had a study that showed that, and this may have been pre pandemic that in a given office day, but employees productivity is less than three hours. So you assume an eight, eight and a half hour day, three hours, maybe even worse. And most of the studies show that your deep flow state and all that deep product work is maybe max of three hours. So if you can unlock that and have them guided towards your company better. So how, again, you wrote this pre-pandemic, but I think there's so much that it was the right future. How do you kind of see that with the remote workforce or distributed workforce and you know, trying to harnessing that discretionary energy. And, you know, I love that. All right. So one point that's really important, going back to uh, the type of listener you have, which, as I understand it, are basically startuppers or or wanting to to build scale. You basically don't have the same type of team as a Unilever or Procter & Gamble, right? You've just got your team and you've got six, 10, 20, whatever number of people and and it therefore the the magic of discretionary energy when applied to that smaller group is is geometrically important yes massive as opposed to in a large large organization where entropy is everywhere and back to the issues of legacy i mean it still has great application in big business but it's all the more important from a let's say a percentage standpoint when you're just a team of six right so what the the issue in especially as we think about remote is is communication because the, the the you don't have the informal communications anymore and the notion of of your purpose can quickly become detached from your daily tasks uh, we're built to perform we're built to knock off to-do lists right. and do stuff but very rarely do we remember to explain why we're doing what we're doing. So the, as you're doing it, and this is, again, I, there's another thing I try to buy away from, which is being tyrannical about a lot of these nice things to do, like purpose, empathy. You can't have it all the time. Right. Sometimes you just got to do shit, right? You got to buck it up, stiff upper lip, and knuckle down. Okay, fine. Yet, if you can associate the task you're asking someone to do in your team with why you're doing it and, and somehow understand that their role in contributing to the purpose is there, then you're going to be able to help tap into that discretionary energy. And when you're working remote, it's not as obvious. So you need to be more intentional about your communications. A, a nice story I have for you, which I, I take from the rugby world. And so I interviewed a chap who played for a team called the British and uh, Irish Lions, which is a team that's constituted of the best players in their position from either England, Scotland, Wales, or Ireland. Okay. So these are otherwise your biggest enemies. And, and you, you, you assemble for a tour and, and you're in whatever position you're playing, you're the best of that player in basically in the Northern Hemisphere. And, and then you have to go and you have to fight the big Southern Hemisphere teams, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. And here's the point. You're now assembled. You're good at what you're doing. You have confidence. Right. You've got 14 other members of your team coming from you, typically your enemies, either a club or another nation. And you have to fight with them. 
And the captain of the Lions team for one tour, that was an amazing success. And as it's attributed for one reason, he said, as he gathered the team together before the tour, he said, here's what's going to, how I roll. First of all, anytime you want to come see me for a beer, I, I'll never say no. And, and that means for anything personal. Right. Okay. Secondly, I want you to spend 20% of your time together just shooting the shit, finding out about each other. Instead of practicing drills, looking at tapes and all the other things that are make you good at execution. Wow. 20, that's how important he thinks that trust at a personal level is to performance. And so going to this notion of remote work and future of work, you need to be intentional. And and that means if I give you 20% time, that means I have to allow you to not do the other things I'm telling you to do for work down to 80%. So you need to be logical in that. You can't just assume the 20% should come out of your free time. And, And so you need to be intentional about your communications, especially when you're in a remote work situation. It's very quick for people to dissociate themselves, their work from why they're doing it. Because, you know, rush, 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 got to do stress of performance. This has got to get in client stress. And, and, so, and sure, sometimes that remains the situation. But it, whenever you can, remember to do it, explain why, and drill that perf- purpose into everybody. Yeah, I think that's a, such a great analogy, too, because I think back, I mean, even going back to Winter Olympics of 80, the U.S. hockey team beating Russia, right? Those, those guys came together. They believed in the mission. They trusted each other and no business beating what was probably arguably the, the greatest hockey team in, in the world at that point. And I remember where I was when I watched that match. Yeah, it was tape delayed for us in the States. Back uh, well, I, I got up in the middle of the night to watch it. I was in America. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, and everybody that was there and will never forget, but I think the the your your analogy is perfect. And you see that with other all-star teams that lose to uh, a team that plays together all the time. And I think that is so important. If you can't get folks aligned around the mission and the goal and the objective and understand why, the why I think is 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 a big piece of it. And I still think, you know, tying all the way back to our original point that you know, startup founders don't realize the power they have by being able to do this, right? And getting the right team assembled around you. Somebody shared, there's a founder that shared the story that, man, if I had the top 10 talented people, but if they all didn't believe in what we were doing, we were going to fail, right? So um, again, I think it's an underappreciated, they don't teach us necessarily in classes, but it's it's getting aligned is can be so powerful to you know these companies, especially younger companies. So my caveat to this idea is, and it's a little bit contrarian at some levels, is to avoid having too many like-minded people. True. Because it's way too easy to just get you know your best buddies. You're aligned. You think it's great because oh yeah, of course we get along. We we party together. We work together. That's great. Yet, who's the, who's the person who's prepared to ask the tough questions? Who's the person who's going to bring a totally different angle to this? And it might well be that amongst your, your friends, you've got an anthropologist, you've got some shit-stirring critical thinking person who's always going to be the stick in the mud. 
right. and whatever. But you, yeah. you need to make sure that you surround yourself, not just with yes people or like-minded people, but also that brings some diversity of your thought. And, and you need to be intentional about that too. I've seen so many boards of directors that are filled with people who, let's say, believe, but believe too quickly, if you will. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. No, I agree. It's right. You got to get all the points of view and they've got to be able to, it's a great caveat, points of view and be comfortable to share differing opinions, right? At the end of the day, you still all got to fight in the same direction, but having that different perspectives, I think you're right, is absolutely critical to it. Not to a point where it paralyzes a team, right? Right. Absolutely. But no, I think that's a a great way to- And yeah, the issue at some level, like you're saying, is that you need to know and trust but I've got your back. So if I'm critical to you at this point, like I just did this caveat kind of feeling, it, it's not to demean or other, it's with good intention to push back. And, and I, that's the, the goal there. Is to, and I, I call it the board of governors approach. So when you're at your team, you have a marketing person, a salesperson, and a technical person for the sake of argument. Right. The tech person and the salesperson ought to have the ability to critique the marketing. And everybody has the ability to participate in the meeting if they've been invited at the same level as the expert. Of course, they don't have the same level, but that feeling of agency and participation and hopefully contribution is really important. Yeah, no, I think it's such a good point. I think you even call that out in the book where training should have an equal say say in the the overall. Exactly, exactly. Right, so... Uh, makes perfect sense. And I know I can talk to you for another hour. So respectful of your time, man. What else? I know we could even go deeper in the book. Is there a couple other areas or a couple other thoughts you'd have for, for startups that you know are thinking about this journey that we haven't touched on? All right. So I mentioned brand, and I think that's a, a big one. But the I think the I haven't really spoken enough about the need to work on who you are because Essentially, anybody who's listening to this would be like me back when someone said, you know who you are? I, yeah, of course I know who I am. Who else would know who I am? I got news for you. The chances are you don't know, and I certainly didn't know who I was. I have a wife who sometimes calls me out for things faster than I can even say the words because she sometimes sees things in me that I don't. And it's not always negative. There can be positive things too. So the point is, give yourself the gift of finding out who you are deeply and what matters to you. Because in the end of the day, there are roughly 75 values and all the values are really quite lovely. I mean, family, integrity, honesty, perseverance, determination. Oh my gosh, all these are wonderful. Right. But you're going to need to decide who you are and what do you stand for. And so what you need to do is kind of road test some of these ideas that you think you like, but really go down deeper and, and actually know what you like. So my three values are love, courage, and honor. These are the ones that speak to me the most. Sure, I like integrity, honesty. I mean, there's so many others, right? But those are the three that I've chosen. And those are my pillars. I, I'm rock solid on them. But it didn't just come overnight. I worked on this stuff because like everybody else, I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. But these are the ones that I want 
to have underpinning me in sleep, in shower, at the dinner table with my family, driving a car, talking with a stranger, and at work. And, and so this notion of going to find out who you are, it's an amazing journey. And it needs to be honest, it's where you are able to understand your weaknesses and your darker side. The side you just don't want to put on Instagram. Right. That's the good. side you generally don't even want to talk about. And, and you don't need to explain it and tell everybody I'm an axe murderer. However, you need to embrace it and, and realize it. And it doesn't mean then you accept it. Right. Because if you're an axe murderer, you got, I got news for you. You got you to improve. You got to fix that. <laughs> right. So it does, but at least you're aware of it. And it, by being aware and, and not putting it in a corner in a cupboard, you then have a chance to improve it. And so the journey of finding out who you are is, is really critical because whatever you're doing at work ought to contribute to who you are, but shouldn't define you. Yeah. So when you, the, the way I, I, I like to frame it is, right, you might not know who you are, but you have a good shot at describing who you want to be because there's a, an abstractness to it. You might be 22 years old and you don't know. Okay, that's fine. But imagine yourself, you're for 22 as a 40-year-old. Where are you? Who are you? Who's around you? What are your values? And, and, and so imagine describing, having other the people that are important to you. It could be your father, your mother, your lover, a, a, a child that you haven't had yet. And what would you want them to say about you as a person? And they're not going to say, you're a great CEO. Right. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. They're going to talk about your human qualities. And so if you can visualize the person you want to be, there's actually a chance you might become that person. Because if you don't have a strong, precise vision of who you want to be, there is a very high percentage of chance that you ain't going to get there because it's not precise and you haven't visualized it. You might have lots of wonderful things. Sure, there are lots of great values, but it's going to be diffuse. And when it's diffuse, so goes your energy. When you have a strong, precise vision of who you want to be, then you know why you're doing what you're doing. It may eat up 18 hours of your day. It may be a lot of shit and difficulties but at least you know why you're doing it because it's contributing to who you want to be. And that returns the energy. Yeah. It taps back into that discretionary energy. So that work is, is right. I mean, it's really important for just about anybody anywhere. And, and I, I know that it's not obvious when you're younger, when you're starting out, you haven't done so many things because experiences forge your thoughts, right? And your beliefs. Right. But having just giving yourself the gift. It's a real present. And, and, and the funny thing is that actually it's, a, it's about being present with yourself to understand who you are, what makes your heart tick, what makes your pulse run. Why is it making you run? And, and feeling all those elements and emotions within you and not just looking at it like I'm a rational, productive person, understanding the foibles in your emotions, your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities leaning into that. And that is what's going to make you a better leader. Because once you've done it, 
it's actually much easier to lead other people and allow them to do the same thing. Yeah. And by the way, that's growth. My, my mentor, a guy called Sam Villa said, change is for sure. Growth is the option. And what he meant was not professional growth, like in growing the bottom line, it's personal and professional growth. And if you can help people to grow and feel better about themselves, more confident, fuller about themselves, well, what bigger present can you ever give to anybody? Yeah, no, that's actually so, so powerful. I wish you would have given me this <laughs> chat about 30 years ago. And through my, even through my own journey, right, it took me to 50 to kind of figure out what made me happy, what I really want to do more professionally than necessarily personally, but I'm finding that it intertwines and better late than never the way I look at it. And the advice I give my daughters is, man, just don't go through the motions. Life is too short to go through the motions. But the way you just kind of articulated what you want to be, right? It makes so much sense. It seems so simple, but yet I had probably very few people go through that exercise. Just like if you want your company to be this, if you don't have a plan, to your point, you're not going to get there. So if you don't have a personal plan of where you want to be, and it may change, but no, sure. man, I, I think that's that's my the next step in my journey is to figure out those that tie it back to the values, right? So I've got generally where I was going, but no, I mean, I thought that that's really good. And the way I roll on that, just to tie it up, is you create that vision of of who you want to be. That becomes your compass, like a direction. It's not a precise direction because yeah. forget perfection, but it becomes your direction. Your values explain why that direction is important to you. And so once you've created that person I want to be, then you, and you've whittled down your values to three describable behaviors that define the value in your mind, because innovation for you could mean something completely different for, for me and so on. Right. And then when you've done that definition, what are the links? What's the story that connects those values to your vision of who you want to be? And, and if they're coherent and congruent, then you're onto something. If they're not, you chance to go back to the drawing board, probably mostly about your vision and less about your values, but you know, nothing's off the board. Right. No, I think that's that's so good and you know, perfect way to end this conversation. I almost hate to ask because I ask every guest what is one thing they would highly recommend. And if you can top this, then <laughs> well, I'll ask you. So uh, the, the thing that comes to mind, and I just was talking about connections, and I've talked about communications. We've talked a little bit about energy. I, I want to. Uh, I feel like there's a book I want to recommend that isn't your daily business book. But it's a book that had, a, I, 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 there are several that have had profound influences on me. And I certainly liked uh, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind and Being Mortal by Dr. Atul Gawande. I think it's really important to embrace death as well. But the book that I want to recommend is called Lost Connections by an English journalist called Johan Hari. And, and why is it interesting? Well, first of all, he was a depressed individual. He still is probably for 25 years of his life, he was diagnosed depressed. And I think a lot of people are unhappy. I don't need to say you're depressed, but a lot of people are suffering. Sure. And, and what he offers in his book is how to fight your way out of it. So if you have the, the pathology, that's one thing. He, he prof, 
provides these seven different ways of reconnecting with yourself, with nature, like putting your hands in the mud and, and get, your, get the dirt under your fingernails, reconnecting with friends, connecting with strangers. And, and so pathologic, you know, for the people who have a pathology, that can be interesting. But I think it's super important for the well people too. As connected as we think we are, it feels like there is truly a loneliness epidemic. And, and the example of the reason why I think that is absolutely the case, I don't have statistics to, to back it. It changes from country to country, but because very few people listen, everybody needs to talk. And, and listening is such a, a great way to connect. And so I, I, I feel like we've, we've disconnected we need to reconnect with who we are. We need to reconnect with our relative unimportance in this universe. Hence my throwback to Michael Pollan and, and, and uh, I guess consciousness at some level. And, and read this book because it's really great. It's a blueprint for how to get connected and by being connected, regain energy and purpose. Uh, definitely. I'll add that to the, to the show notes and add it to my growing <laughs> library of books that I need to read. But no, I think that that's some really good advice. And you're right that especially in this, hopefully we're still in the pandemic as we're recording this, but hopefully we see it's light at the end of the tunnel and people just take a different appreciation through things. So, so mentor, thank you so much for doing this. I know there's going to be folks that want to connect with you. I highly recommend your books, your podcast is good. What's the best place for people to, to find you and connect with you? Well, my, my father gave me his father's name, which um, the subject of the film, of course, as you know. Minter Dial is as yet a rather obscure name. Uh, benefit of that is that it's rather simple to find on Google, minterdial.com. Otherwise, I'm usually on different social at mdial, M-D-I-A-L, which I understand is mundial for short in Spanish lingo, but I don't think I'm necessarily the world, but that's, <laughs> that's another thing. And otherwise, my books are on the usual e-tailers around the world, including bookshop.org, which is supporting independent books, book tellers. And then my film, The Last Ring Home, I have a site for that, also the book, a story of, of, I think, real values that I think is necessary in our society. Uh, be showing on Memorial Day on PBS in many places in North America and otherwise is available a VOD on, on a sub, several sites as well. Yeah, and again, highly recommend that as well. It was a, a great, what, what would you call it, a short short film? Or what, what would short be doc, that? short doc, yeah. Short document, yeah, but it was really powerful and moving. And yeah, I know a little bit off of topic, but it goes back to tying the personal to the professional and what motivates you and drives you. So again, I would, I would highly recommend you check out all of that. So, so Mentor, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, definitely have to check back in with you maybe post-pandemic and see what's next for you. But appreciate you spending some time with us today. Brett, it's been an absolute pleasure. I like your energy and I enjoyed your questions in the chat with you. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. You too. 